We are continuing in our series on Ancestry.Bible, telling the stories of our forefathers and foremothers in Genesis. Today we hear the story of Isaac and Rebecca, who very much wanted to have a child and ended up with twins, Esau and Jacob, who did not like each other very much. Uh, we're going to read about them in uh, Genesis chapter 25, beginning at verse 19. These are the descendants of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel the Aramean of Padam Aran, sister of Laban the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and his wife Rebekah conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is to be this way, why do I live? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples born of you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The elder shall serve the younger. When her time to give birth was at hand, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy mantle, so they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand gripping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob, which means heel in Hebrew. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. I'm sorry, yeah, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man living in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he was fond of game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was famished. Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stuff, for I am famished. Therefore he was called Edom, which means red. Jacob said, first, sell me your birthright, meaning your birth order that you're the oldest. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is my birthright? Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of God for all of us. Thanks be to God. I ask you please to pray with me. May the words that I say and the reflections that go through our minds give you pleasure, God. You who are our rock. You who save us. Amen. J.D. Vance has written a book which has become a bestseller. It's called Hillbilly Elegy. And in it, he tells about the family that he grew up in, in Appalachia. And he talks about how far he has come. He now is someone who graduated from Yale Law School. And he's not saying he's done anything special. But what he's saying in the book is there's this whole community of people, uh, poor, whiter people often of Scots-Irish ancestry, living in Appalachia. And often their stories don't get told. So he writes Hillbilly Elegy to tell specifically about his family, but also to describe a people, the Appalachian people. He comes from a family that's pretty colorful. 
He had an uncle who was known as Uncle T-Berry. That was named after the T-Berry gum used to be available for sale. And he comes from a pretty violent family. Uncle T-Berry got mad at him for something. It's not really explained why. But T-Berry came after him with a knife and threatened to cut off his ear. J.D. was able to keep both ears only because he got to the lap of his grandmother, whom he called Mama, just in time. And Mama protected him. But I don't want you to get the impression that Mama was all sugar and spice. There's a story told about Mama when she was 12. She was inside the family home. She looked out, and there were two men trying to steal the family cow. She was so angry, she went back inside, grabbed the gun, ran out, took the shotgun, shot one guy in the leg, and the other guy just barely got away. Don't mess with Mama. J.D. grew up with just this kind of family, knowing who was patient, who wasn't, most of them weren't, <laughs> you know, just trying to make his way in this family and find out who he was in the midst of it. But as I said, he also tells the story to tell the story of a people that are often overlooked. When we talk about all the peoples of the United States, there's a whole swath that is often overlooked in that story, and that is people who are lower income, white, often from the Appalachian region, um, who have kind of their own distinct culture that often doesn't get talked about or noticed. And J.D. Vance wrote the book to bring, that, bring their stories to light. I give that example because the story we've got today is the story about a specific family, but it's also the story about the Israelite people who would become the Jewish people. And it's also a story about all the families of the earth. And so there are aspects of their story that may sound very familiar to you, either in the family you grew up in or in if you've got children in situations of your kids. Um, these may be very familiar stories, and I hope in their familiarity you can take some hope and some comfort knowing that God works in all kinds of situations. We know that Isaac was older when he married. Isaac was cousins not with Rebekah, but with Rebekah's father. They were from two different generations. So Isaac was 40. Imagine Rebekah more like late teens or 20 when she married. At first, they weren't able to have children, and Isaac prayed for her to be able to become pregnant, and she did become pregnant, but it was not a fun pregnancy. Some of you have had not fun pregnancies, and it felt to her as if there was a war in her womb. She was just miserable, and so she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord told her basically, yep, you've got a war going on in there that there are two cultures, there are two nations that will come out of you, they will be divided, one will be stronger than the other, and the younger will be in charge, the elder will serve the younger, the younger is going to be in charge. Now that's not the typical order of things, the typical order of things is the firstborn son is the one that has more rights and privileges, but God is telling her, nope, the younger one is going to be the one in charge. And she's so miserable in this pregnancy, she says... <laughs> If it's going to be like this, why do I live? That line alone could inspire sermon after sermon. How many times in our lives have we prayed and prayed for something, and then when we get it, we think, wow, if I knew it was going to be like this. I'm not saying we feel that all the time, but we have moments we feel that way in our marriages, 
We have moments we feel like that with our children. We have moments we feel like that in our jobs. If I had any idea it was going to turn out like this, I, what, what's the point? Rebecca is feeling that very human reaction of, I thought I wanted this, but this is no picnic. Boy, we know what that feels like. She continues the pregnancy with this kind of war inside her, and then out come the children, and these two boys are so different from each other. First is Esau, and he's got reddish skin, and he's hairy, and then out comes Jacob, who isn't hairy or red, and Jacob, this little baby, is holding on to the heel of his big brother as if he's trying to pull him back in the womb. Even before they were born, Jacob wanted to be first. Right away, we see these kind of different temperaments between the two children who are twins. Roxy, I'm looking at you and thinking of your triplets and, and blessing you. <laughs> you know, how children can come from the same pregnancy and be very different from each other. They are not necessarily identical. Here are two boys who are really different. Esau, he's an outdoors guy. He just wants to go hunt and bring back some game, and Isaac loves that. So he's, the, he's dad's favorite. Esau is the favorite of Isaac. He brings back the game. Isaac loves it. They're, they're guys. They're, you know, they've got their own style. They're really happy together. Jacob, totally different temperament. He's quieter. He's more likely to stay at home. And Esau may not be the sharpest knife in the drawer. We kind of get that impression from the story that happens next. But Jacob is smart, but he's a conniver. Jacob's always thinking about the next thing. He's always thinking about himself and how he can get ahead. And we saw that in his personality with his hand on his brother's heel, trying to pull him back. And now we move into the story when the two are, I'm sorry, and Jacob is favored by his mom, Rebecca. Any of you who have been children who grew up with favoritism in your family, any of you parents who struggle not to have favorites, you know how painful that can be. You know how one parent is more patient with the other child. I mean, it just, this stuff gets complicated and painful. Sounds like our families. Esau and Jacob, brothers out of the same birth, but very, very different children. So there comes a time when Esau has gone off hunting, and apparently he has not had success. He does not come back with game. He comes back famished. One commentary I read argued that perhaps, uh, perhaps Jacob uh, knew that his brother might come back hungry and so made up the pot of stew as a trap, but we don't know that. But Esau comes back, he's been out hunting, I don't know how long, and he's really hungry. He comes back and here's his brother, nice mm, red lentil stew, doesn't that smell good? So Esau, Esau is a man of instincts, he's a man of what I want right now. He is so hungry, he can't think about anything else. Brother, give me some of that stew. Jacob, here's my chance. Well, just, just tell me your birthright, give me your birthright. And Esau, again, a man of the moment. What do, what, I'm about to die. What, what does a birthright matter? Who cares? He wants instincts. He wants what he wants now. And Jacob, taking a hold of this moment, says, well, but swear to it first. And fine, I swear, whatever. Take my birthright. And Jacob sets out the stew. 
We can look at this as a story of that nasty, conniving Jacob. But the Bible wants to make sure you catch that both these brothers have acted badly. The last line of the story is, and thus Esau despised his birthright. Esau had been given something precious by his family in his status as the firstborn, and he just gave it away. Who cares? And that's going to come back and have ramifications for him as we continue on in this story. We may hear the story of the two fighting brothers and think, why is this in the Bible? This is not very edifying. This is not a thrilling, happy story. Did you love that child who's only peace and sharing? I, I, if only that were me. <laughs> that, that was not Rick and me as children. <laughs> but many of our families, you know, the kids aren't, we're different from one another. We want different things. We can really be at each other's throats. It doesn't feel like there's a whole lot of grace in the story. And yet the grace is in certain ways underneath it and all around it and through it. Because this is the story of, yes, fighting brothers, but it's also the story of how God works. God works through older husbands. God works through women who thought they were barren. God works through a lummox like Esau, and God works through a conniver like Jacob. Esau and Jacob came to be fathers of a people. Jacob, the people Israel. Esau, the people of Edom. And later on, as we continue in the scriptures, we'll hear a story about the Edomites. Those are Esau's people. Esau became a father of a nation. God worked through them. And God worked through Jacob, the conniver, even through him. If God can work through an older dad and a woman who'd been barren and a lummox and a conniver, maybe God can work through me. Maybe God can work through us. We know our good impulses and we know our loving hearts, but we also know our brokennesses and the place where we mess up. And it turns out that there's a lot of grace in the world that God can work through us and in us. Another powerful element of the story that I want to lift up is what God does through Jacob. In the oracle that God gave Rebekah, God said, the elder will serve the younger. God was coming in to turn things upside down. And we're learning a powerful message about what God does. We may have it in our heads that things are this way, they're always going to be this way, they're just stuck. Esau and Jacob are always going to fight, the Edomites and the Israelites are always going to, it's always going to be that way. We may have that in our heads, but that's not how God works. God comes into situations and brings air and flips it over and turns it upside down. You would have said, well, the older brother always gets all the rights. Uh-uh, God came in, flipped it, made Jacob the one who would be the father of the Israelite people. God can come in and shift everything, throw things on their heads of how we thought it always had to be. We can get stuck in this, it's always like this. And God comes up and flips things and brings new life. We see that so powerfully in the person of Jesus. Jesus who came teaching and healing and feeding everyone, who loved everyone. But as we read the Gospels, we know that not everyone responded really fondly to Jesus' message. In fact, a lot of the people who responded most powerfully to Jesus were those on the margins. 
the widows and the orphans and the ones who needed healing and the ones who were hungry, it turned out that a lot of them were the ones who got it first. The Samaritan woman at the well is the first one in the Gospel of John. She's the first one to see that Jesus is the Messiah. The Roman centurion understands who Jesus is and what his authority is before many of the others in the area did. Many of the people you wouldn't have expected to hear the good news of God were precisely the ones who understood it first. God flipped it around. Brothers and sisters, this may feel like a very not edifying story, but there is so much grace and hope in this story. Yeah, brothers or brothers and sisters can really fight. That issue of sibling rivalry didn't start in your family. (laughs) It goes way back when you're a parent about to tear your hair out, when you think about, you know, you may be in your later years and you're still fighting with your siblings and you think, isn't this done? You can go, you know, this was in the Bible. This goes way back. But even though these things can go way back, it doesn't mean it always has to be that way because of the power and grace of God who can come into situations and flip them on their heads. And when we get stuck in it always has to be that way, God can come in and say, you know what? It doesn't. Can come in the person of Jesus who loved and healed and taught, who received all of the violence and the sin and the shame and the scorn of the human community, received all of that on himself and said, I will take it all. And everyone thought, well, we know how this goes. And now he dies and it's all over. And once again, God flipped it, raised Jesus from the dead showing that love and life are stronger than death and hatred. Who knows what situation in which we feel stuck could be flipped around by God's love and grace and mercy at any point. May this story be good news for you, knowing that God will work in and through you, rascal, lummox, whatever we are, God can work through us and do powerful things for the coming kingdom of God. Amen. Now I'd like to share with you our mission moments. I'm going to ask for that first slide to come forward. We've just started sharing every Sunday something that's going on in mission around the church that may not be visible in worship. One of the things we started last last year was offering, we've got a lot of property, offering some of our space so that people who are work campers coming to Rockford could stay in our property. Um, Some of these groups have stayed in Trinity. Some of the groups have stayed in our youth workroom. But we want to share with you about these. This is a group that came from um, St. Charles, uh, Missouri. They are uh, a wonderful St. John's UCC congregation. And first, their college students came, and you notice the quilt up there, our amazing quilting group, has been making small cross quilts for each of these groups that stayed on our property while they've come here to work in the Rockford area. So this is a group from Missouri, uh, UCC college students. Now, if we can see the next slide. This is from, I, want to, I don't have my sheet of paper, I want to say Bonfield, Illinois. And this was a group of seventh graders through high school that came up and stayed with us again for about five days. And then the next slide, the St. John's UCC group from Missouri came back. The first time it was college students. Now this time it's middle schoolers, again, working through our Rockford work camps here in the city. I thought you would be pleased to know that our property is used during the time that we support mission, not only by our own going out, but also that groups can come in and stay in our space and receive hospitality. Cliff Gillette is the one who has done such a marvelous job with this ministry. And uh, 
we are in mission in all sorts of ways, including sharing our property. Thanks be to God.